Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We've covered the first 14 verses of the book of Acts, and we've seen how the disciples have been prepared to take the baton from the Lord Jesus and run with it. In verse 3, we read that following his resurrection, Jesus has appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days, telling them about the kingdom of God and convincing them that he, the king, is alive. And so they have their message. In verses 4 to 8, they get their orders to wait for the Holy Spirit to come who will give them the power to take that message to the uttermost part of the earth. In verses 9 to 11, they witness Christ's ascension and hear from the angels the promise of his return. And then in verses 12 to 14, we see that as they wait, they're not just sitting around swapping old disciple stories. They are committing themselves to prayer and as a result, they have one mind together before the Lord. And so we might expect that the next verse we would read would be chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly, here comes the Holy Spirit. But that's not what happens next. Because there's one other important item of business that has to take place first. Jesus chose 12 apostles. At the present time, there are only 11. You say, well, they could probably get the job done with 11. Well, they probably could. But there had to be 12. Remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact that in the book of Ephesians, Paul gives us two analogies in the first two chapters of the church. It's a body and it's a building. And here's what he says in Ephesians 2.20 about the building. It was built upon the foundation of the apostles, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation of this building that's about to be built in Acts chapter 2. Now, Jesus, or, the, or God also tells us in his word that they, there had to be 12 apostles. Remember in Revelation chapter 21, John saw the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God. And it says in verse 12, there were 12 gates to the city, and on each gate was the name of one of the tribes of Israel. And it says in verse 14, there were 12 foundation stones, and on, the name of each, or on one, each of those stones was the name of one of the 12 apostles. Now, if there are only 11 apostles, then the foundation for the church has not been established. There had to be 12. Listen to what Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 19, 28. He said, Truly I say to you who have followed me, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. If there's only eleven apostles, there's going to be a vacancy on one of those thrones. If there's only 11 apostles, there will be no leader over one of the tribes of Israel in the kingdom. And so, here at the end of Acts chapter 1, prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit, prior to the birth of the church, they address this issue of the 12th apostle. Notice verse 15. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said... Now, 120 people is not the total number of believers at this point in time. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, that Jesus appeared to over 500 brethren at one time. That was probably on the mountain in Galilee, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 28. 
Jesus spent most of his earthly ministry in Galilee. That's where most of the believers were. This is describing a scene in Jerusalem in the upper room where this 120 people are gathered together waiting for the Holy Spirit. And sometime during their 10-day prayer meeting, Peter stands up and begins to speak. Now that's not uncommon for Peter. He's always the disciple who steps forward and takes the lead, and so he does here. But notice what he says in verse 16. Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He didn't say, a terrible tragedy has taken place, we've lost a disciple. And this whole episode has blindsided God, it was the last thing he expected. No. He says, it had to happen because the Bible said it would. Now, if you're like me, you look down here to make sure this is Peter talking. Because this doesn't sound like Peter. In fact, let me, let me show you what sounds like Peter. Go, go back to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and be raised again on the third day. He began to show them that he must go to Jerusalem. How did he show them that? Well, I assume he showed them that by using the Old Testament scriptures. And while he's going over Old Testament scriptures, showing them that he must suffer and die, what happens in the next verse? Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, No way, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter says, I don't care what the Bible says. I want you to stop all this talk about suffering and dying. Now, it's interesting in the Gospels, there's only one time when we find that Peter used his mouth to speak forth for God. And that didn't last very long because only moments later he was using the same mouth to speak for Satan. Most of the time he used his mouth to give his own opinion. But here in Acts chapter 1, he is saying the scripture had to be fulfilled. Now what happened to Peter? Well, I think that during the 40 days when Jesus was not with them and during the 10 days when they were not praying, that they were pouring over the Old Testament scriptures. Remember what Jesus said to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24? In verse 25, he said, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And then later in verse 44, he said, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so now they're going back to the Old Testament Scriptures and seeing what it is that God prophesied for their day. And now we find Peter sounding an awful lot like the Lord Jesus when he says the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Now what Scriptures are you talking about? Well, look at verse 20. In verse 20, he quotes two verses from the Psalms. One from Psalm 69, 25, and one from Psalm 109, 8. And this section is really Peter's commentary on these two passages. 
He's going to show us how the first passage was fulfilled in verses 16 to 19 and how the second passage is fulfilled in verses 21 to 26. And Peter's commentary on these two passages really give us the outline for this passage because here we're going to see the suicide of a disciple and the selection of a disciple. First of all, the suicide of a disciple in verses 16 to 19. Notice verse 16 again. Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, Peter characterized the scripture he's about to quote as that which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. That's a great description of the inspiration of scripture. The Holy Spirit foretold it using the mouth of David. Peter would later describe inspiration this way in 2 Peter 1.21. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And in this case, the Holy Spirit speaking through David spoke about Judas. Now we talk today about the Word of God being relevant. It doesn't get any more relevant than this. Peter says a thousand years ago, David wrote about Judas, the guy we've been hanging around with, for the last three and a half years. Now I'm sure as he says this, some in the group are thinking, how could the word of God be fulfilled in the life of Judas when Judas is the one who betrayed the Lord Jesus? And so as if to answer that question, Peter says, yeah, it's Judas, the Judas you're thinking about, because the end of verse 16 he says, he's the guy who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Even through the treacherous actions of Judas, God's word was being fulfilled. And then notice verse 17. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. He was one of the apostles. He was counted among us. He was one of the twelve. And he received his portion in this ministry. He got his part. He got his responsibility. In Luke chapter 9, when Jesus sent the twelve out, like the other eleven, Judas went out and preached and cast out demons and healed the sick. He received his share in this ministry. Now who counted him among the twelve? Jesus. Who gave him his share in this ministry? Jesus. You say, well, does that mean that Judas was saved? No. Remember in John chapter 13 when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he got to Peter and Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. And Peter said, all right, wash, wash my head, my hands, my, wash everything. And Jesus made this comment, he said, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. And then John adds this commentary, For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. Judas had never had that spiritual bath that Jesus was talking about. In John chapter 6 and verse 64, Jesus said, But there are some of you who do not believe. And then John adds another commentary. He said, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. Judas was not a believer. In John 6, 70, a few verses later, Jesus calls him a devil. 
In John 17, 12, Jesus calls him the son of perdition. Perdition means lostness. He was the son of lostness. He was never found. He was never saved. He was always lost. And that's why Jesus said about him in Matthew 26, 24, that it would have been better for him if he had not been born. You say, well, if Jesus knew from the beginning that he wouldn't believe and knew from the beginning that he would betray him, why did Jesus choose him? Well, Jesus chose him so he would betray him because that was part of God's plan. Now, as you digest that, be careful. God knew that Judas would betray him. He chose him for that reason, but he didn't make him do it. Judas did it himself. And Judas is responsible for those actions. That's why Jesus said this in Luke twenty-two twenty-two: For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus is going to the cross, and God has determined that ahead of time, but woe to the one who betrays him. Judas represents probably the greatest example of wasted opportunity in all of history. He had the rare privilege given to only 12 men of living and ministering with Jesus Christ, God incarnate, for over three years. And he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. And in verses 18 and 19, Luke inserts a parenthesis to give Theophilus, who is a Gentile in Rome, and to us a little more detail about what happened to Judas in his last moments. Notice, now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all who are living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hekeldamah, that is, the field of blood. Now, if this was our only account, we would assume that Judas took his money, went out, bought some land, and while he was out there, he slipped off a cliff and fell, and his insides burst open down below. But we also have another account of this. It's in Matthew 27, and there it says in verse 5 that he took the money back to the chief priests threw it on the floor of the temple because he didn't want anything to do with it anymore, and he went out and he hanged himself. Now, how do we put those two accounts together? Well, let me paint the picture as I see it. John chapter 12 and verse 6 tells us that Judas was the disciple in charge of the money box. He was the treasurer. That same verse tells us that he was a thief, which is a bad combination. And so it tells us he was pilfering money out of the money box. Now, what did he do with the money? We know Judas followed the Lord Jesus because he thought that Jesus was going to be a political leader. He thought he was going to overthrow the Roman government and set up his kingdom immediately in Jerusalem. The other disciples believed that as well, but they changed their heart later on. Judas never changed. And so, that was his motive in following Jesus. Now, with that as his motive, what do you think he invested his money in? Well, the best investment for his money would be 
real estate in Jerusalem. And I think that Judas went out and found a nice plot of land around Jerusalem and began to invest in it. Matthew chapter 27 verse 7 tells us it was owned by a potter and was previously a potter's field. Tradition tells us that it's located south of Jerusalem in the valley of Hinnom at a place where the soil contains a kind of clay suitable for pottery. Perhaps he made payments on that land or perhaps he was saving up the money he was stealing to make a lump sum payment at the end. We don't know. But when Judas realized that Jesus was not going to be the kind of king he intended, he decided he was going to get out and he was going to take something with him. So he went to the chief priests and he made a deal that he would betray the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Why 30 pieces of silver? Perhaps that was the amount he had left to pay on the property. So when Judas carried out the plan, when he led the soldiers into the garden, when he kissed Jesus with that kiss of betrayal, the Bible tells us that he felt remorse. And so he went back to the chief priests, he threw the money at their feet, and Matthew 27, 4, he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And Judas went out. Where did he go? He went to that land that he had been dreaming of owning that he had been dreaming of living upon. He went to that land, and Matthew 27, 5 says he took a rope and he hanged himself. And apparently, the rope broke. And we don't know how he hung himself, whether it was in a large tree, whether it was in a tree overhanging a cliff. When he put his weight on the rope, perhaps it broke then. Others say that maybe it happened because as he hung there, he, his, his body got bloated and swollen. And the weight broke the rope. At any rate, it tells us here that he fell headlong. And when he landed, his insides actually exploded outward. And Matthew 27, 7 says the chief priests couldn't put that money in the temple treasury because it was blood money. And so they gathered it up and they used it to buy the potter's field. And Matthew 27, 8, and also Acts 1, 19, tell us that its name was changed to the field of blood because it was purchased with blood money and because Judas died such a violent death there. And Peter tells us here that it happened in fulfillment of Scripture. Look at verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it. Now that's a quote from Psalm 69. And if you read Psalm 69, it's an obvious messianic psalm. It's talking about the Messiah. In verse 4, we read these words, They hated me without a cause. At the beginning of verse 9, we read, For zeal for thy house has consumed me. The end of verse 9 says, The reproaches of those who reproach thee have fallen on me. And verse 21 says, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Those four verses are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, and they are all quoted in the New Testament. But later in that same psalm, we read a description of what was going to happen to the enemy of Messiah. And Peter quotes verse 25 here, 
saying, let his homestead be made desolate and let no man dwell in it. Was that fulfilled in Judas? Absolutely. No one wanted to live in his homestead because the field was now called the field of blood. That's not the kind of place you would want to build a house and raise your family. And so, rather than this plot of land, rather than this potter's field becoming the place of Judas' dream home, we're told in Matthew 27.7, it became a burial place for strangers. Nobody dwelt there. It became a cemetery. And the scripture was fulfilled. Second thing we learn in this section of scripture is the selection of a disciple. If you notice the end of verse 20, there's a second passage that Peter quotes, and that's from Psalm 109.8, and it says, His office let another man take. No one would dwell in his homestead, but someone would take his office. And Peter initiates that by giving us three requirements for this individual in this passage. The first requirement is that he had to be a witness of Jesus' ministry. Notice verse 21. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. He would have to have witnessed the entire earthly ministry of the Lord. From its inception at his baptism until its culmination at his ascension. You say, well, were there other men besides the twelve apostles? who were with the Lord Jesus throughout that whole time? Yes, there were. Listen to this verse, Luke 6, 13. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. Out of a larger group of disciples, Jesus chose the 12 apostles. How large was that group of disciples? Well, a few verses later in Luke 6, 17, we read this. And he descended with them and stood on a level place. And there was a great multitude of his disciples. He had so many disciples that we're told in Luke chapter 10, he sent 70 of them besides the 12 apostles out on a short-term mission trip. And so the first requirement is it had to be somebody who was around for his entire earthly ministry. And there were many who met that criteria. Second requirement, he had to be a witness of Jesus' resurrection. Look at the end of verse 22. One of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. He had to have seen the risen Christ. Now this second requirement would pare the field down considerably. In fact, if you look over at Acts chapter 10, Peter is speaking again in in chapter 10 at the house of Cornelius. I want you to notice what he says in verse 40. He says, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, and he ordered us to preach to the people. Jesus didn't appear to everybody. He was selective. And so here in Acts chapter 1, the requirement is that this had to be an individual that Jesus chose to appear to. And that's rather obvious in terms of an apostle because his ministry was to be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, look at verse 23 of Acts chapter 1. 
And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Two men met those qualifications. One was Joseph. He was also called Barsabbas, which means son of the Sabbath, probably because he was born on the Sabbath day. And his friends called him Justice. I think he wasn't chosen because he had three names. It would have been confusing. The other guy is Matthias. Now, we don't know anything about either one of these in Scripture because this is the only place in the Bible where they're named. But we do see the third requirement. And that is, he had to be chosen by the Lord. Notice verse 24. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Now, the fact that he was an apostle implies that he had to be chosen by the Lord because the word apostle means a sent one. And a sent one first has to be chosen. And who is the one who chose the apostles? Well, it's the Lord Jesus. We read earlier in Luke 6, 13, And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles. Back in chapter 1 of Acts, in verse 2, it speaks about the apostles at the end of that verse, and says, apostles whom he, Christ, had chosen. And that's why throughout the New Testament, they are called the apostles of Jesus Christ. He's the one who chose them. He's the one who sent them out. And so knowing that they had to be chosen by the Lord, verse 24 says they prayed. And who did they pray to? Well, it says they prayed to the Lord. Who's the Lord? Well, if you go back to verse 21, he's just spoken about the Lord Jesus. Same word. Now in verse 24, he's praying to the Lord. What's interesting is to note what he asked for, what they asked for. They didn't say, Lord, we want you to choose between these two. They said, Lord, we want you to show us who you have already chosen. You've already chosen one to fill this position that Judas has defected from. We want you to show us who. And then I want you to notice that last phrase in verse 25 because it's very sobering. It says, to fill this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. There was a vacancy in the apostleship because Peter turned aside to go to his own place. And when it says his own place, it's not talking about the potter's field. It's talking about hell. Judas wanted a place of his own so bad that he turned away from the Lord Jesus and he got it. He turned away to go to his own place. And now they pray and say, Lord, show us who you have chosen to fill this vacancy. And how do they get an answer to their prayer? Verse 26, And they drew lots for them and the lot fell to Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Usually they took two stones. They might have written their names on each stone or they might have said, Matthias, you've got the white one and Joseph, you've got the black one. They put it in a vessel. They shook it up. Out came Matthias's stone. He was the one. And it says he was numbered with the eleven. He became the twelfth apostle. 
In his ecclesiastical history, Eusebius records that Matthias had been one of the 70 disciples that Jesus sent out in Luke chapter 10. And according to Nicephorus, he was a missionary to Ethiopia and later suffered martyrdom there. Now, in closing this morning, I want to raise some questions that I'm sure some of you are already asking. One question is, how could they discern God's will by gambling? Well, this is not gambling. This is not a casino atmosphere. Uh, This is a, a very dignified thing. They are trusting God to speak through this method. In fact, in Proverbs 16, 33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You say, well, then are we still supposed to use that method of discerning God's will today? You know, casting lots was a very common thing in the Old Testament. Leviticus 16.8 says that Aaron used lots to decide which goat was to be the scapegoat. In Numbers 26.55, it says the children of Israel divided the land by casting lots. In Joshua chapter 7, they discerned that Achan was the guilty party by casting lots. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, Saul was chosen as king by casting lots. And in Acts chapter 1, it is prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so the disciples are essentially still under the Old Testament economy. When the Holy Spirit came, they no longer needed to make decisions in this manner. In fact, what's interesting is this is the last time in the Scriptures casting lots is ever mentioned, and it's mentioned the the chapter before the Holy Spirit comes and begins the church. In Acts chapter 6, when they decided they were going to pick some deacons, They didn't cast lots. They picked individuals who were filled with the Holy Spirit. You say, well, was an apostle supposed to be replaced every time one died? No. See, it's important for us to understand that Judas was replaced not simply because he was deceased. He was replaced because he defected. Verse 25 says he turned aside from his apostleship. The apostles were called to be witnesses, and we said last week that the word witnesses in the Greek is the word martyrs. They went out to die in faithful response to their Lord. They laid the foundation by the shedding of their blood. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, we have a description of the death of James. James, the brother of John, the one who went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, had his head cut off. It doesn't say right after that that they met together to replace him. They didn't need to replace him. He will be sitting on one of those 12 thrones in the kingdom of the Lord. He was faithful unto death. Judas defected. He was the only one who had to be replaced. You say, well... You know, some Bible teachers say that Peter and the apostles were acting improperly when they picked Matthias. Shouldn't they have waited on the Lord and let him put the apostle Paul in this 12th position? That's a common position. And as I look at this passage, you know, what strikes me is that there's nothing in this record to indicate that they acted wrongly. In fact, it says they were acting according to Scripture in verse 20. 
They did it in the context of a 10-day prayer meeting when verse 14 says they were all of one mind. There were no dissenters on this occasion. They prayed in verse 24 for the Lord to show them who He chose. All the Lord would have had to say is wait. And then later plugged in the Apostle Paul if that was his plan. But you know, as I look at this passage, it's inconceivable to me that the Lord would allow such a crucial error in such a crucial office at the beginning of the church. Why would he take such pains to make sure they had all the resources they needed to start the church and then let them go out and pick the wrong guy? I think that Matthias is the twelfth apostle. And I believe he will be sitting on that throne in the kingdom ruling over one of the tribes of Israel. You say, well, what about Paul? Well, Paul was an apostle. But nowhere does Paul claim to be one of the twelve. He was a unique apostle. The other twelve were apostles to the nation of Israel. Paul, according to Romans eleven thirteen, was an apostle to the Gentiles. You say, yeah, but you don't read anything else about Matthias in the book of Acts. Well, let me ask you this. Where do you read about Bartholomew in the book of Acts? Or Thomas? Or Matthew? We don't read about those guys. The only disciples, the only apostles who are highlighted in the book of Acts are Peter, James, and John. Well, let me show you something. Go back to Luke chapter 24. The previous chapter that Luke wrote, Luke chapter 24 and verse 9, speaking about the women, it says, And they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven. Verse 33, And they arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven. Why were there eleven? Because Judas had betrayed the Lord. Judas had defected. Now in Acts chapter 1, we have the choice of Matthias. I want you to look at Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verse 2. And the twelve summoned the congregation. There were eleven. Now there are twelve. Why? Because Matthias is now filling the place that Judas defected from. And now, at the end of chapter 1, the foundation is in place. And next week, in Acts chapter 2, we're going to see this new entity, this new building erected, the church. You say, well, i got one other question. What's this got to do with Father's Day? Well, let me make a quick application just so you don't get away today without being exhorted. They were laying the foundation for the church to begin, which is the family of God. If you're here today and you are a father, you are the foundation of your home. God expects you to be the kind of foundation He wants you to be so upon you He can build the kind of family that he wants to build.
And so you can make the very application to this passage. God has chosen you. He set you aside to be the foundation of a godly home. What kind of foundation are you? Are you the kind that He can build a godly family upon? Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this passage of Scripture. And Father, even though it's bleak in cases as it deals with Judas, we thank You that we see in it that You are in control because You planned it all and You prophesied it all. And Father, as we consider the fathers represented here today, we give You thanks for those that are our fathers. We appreciate them. And Father, we pray that You would challenge us to be the kind of foundation in our home that would bring glory to You for the generations to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask Ralph to come forward at the close of the service and you can come up and give him a big hug.